Welcome to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knipe, once again bringing you stories of art and the art of stories. Today's guest is the very talented artist Simon Linnington. Simon is not only a visual artist, but also a writer. His short stories vary in length and meander between dream worlds, physical sensations, inexplicable scenery, and the repetition of departures. His artwork is not entirely different. We often see open-ended installations which reconfigure the gallery space, and the thought starter for this took me by surprise when it was revealed in our conversation. Simon has an uncanny ability to closely examine every minute nuance of a space and question why anything and everything is presumed to be the way it is. It's almost as if he's measuring and manipulating an experiment of some kind. The result is a mixture of sparse and absolutely essential. I really feel transported when I experience his work. I'm taken to a peculiar space and I seem to almost shed the way I move around the outside world. I take meticulous care, shifting slowly, pausing, looking, considering, adding all the elements together and absorbing the atmosphere to understand how to let go of understanding. For our discussion today, Simon's chosen Evangeline 2, which is his short fiction published in New York's Sunday Salonzine earlier this year. And we're also given a glimpse of ghosts, which will soon be revealed in So Anyway magazine. And links to these are of course available in my podcast notes. Today's story starts with the line, Evangeline called from Mexico City and said what she had to say. Goodbye, Simon. I've heard it before. The author then takes us through the voyage that is his reaction to the news, traversing mountains, swimming pools, La Bomba pizza joint, and the mouth of a volcano. By the way, there's a small glitch in the middle of this recording, for which, hey, I can only apologise. Simon Lennington, welcome to Art Fictions today. Morning, Gillian. This is a different kind of podcast today because we're not talking about a book that somebody else has written. We're talking about a piece of fiction that you have written, Simon Lennington. So what I'd like to understand from the outset is how do you see that in conjunction with your practice? Well, I write a lot of notes in my sketchbook and it's the same sketchbook I use for my artwork. I sometimes write down conversations and I write down dreams I find interesting or frightening. I don't label these notes, so there's no separation between the different accounts. And so they're sort of flattened out. And when I start writing a story, the first line I think of is the first line of the story, and it stays the first line of the story. And then when I think, this reminds me of the time this happened, or this person said that, and that's how the story develops through my notes and my memory of my notes and my memory of reality. And that kind of bends and warps. And there's a lot of imagery, energy, sensation, mental flights, and occasionally wild inaccuracies and detail where it might not seem important. Like why would someone think or say or do or choose to communicate that? But I think that's why I write is to communicate with friends, family, to learn about myself, my relationships for fun or because I'm bored or because I want to do something creative which uses all of me and is open-ended. It's almost on par with your making practice from your description, but you can't always make all the time because so much of your work is installation, unless you wanted to redecorate your living room constantly. (laughs) (laughs) Your practice is limited. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I think it's easiest to draw comparisons between the show I had at Division of Labour called um, Everything Can Be Broken with my writing method because with that show, I was given five days to make the show. And what you saw in that exhibition was five different interventions in the space. One was decided on the first day, the second on the evening of the first day and, and so on. So there was a kind of knock-on effect. Like that's something which I do with my writing. It, it kind of creates a rhythm which moves through the story. The, the end is just editing, shaving a bit here, moving things around. It's very similar. We're going to come back to that exhibition, but just for now, 
I thought perhaps you could read a bit from Evangeline too. Sure. It wasn't long before the phone went dead and I was holding it down by my side. I was looking somewhere above the fireplace toward the corner of the room, at the edge of the tiles or an insect maybe, I don't know. I remember how the sunlight looked as it wrapped itself around the wall in front of me, turning it grey. Everything was grey and the world was slowing down. The birds stopped flapping their wings and the trees stopped their dance with the breeze. And on the Sierra Cazola, climbers stopped climbing and I was no longer hungry or tired and I was no longer anything at all. I took a step toward the stool and put both hands flat on the top to let it take my weight and then it all went black. I am slowly falling headfirst through the air. I don't know what from because I don't remember being there, wherever I was. I hold my arms outstretched and I can feel the air move between my fingers and blow my hair up and over the top of my head. I like falling like this, slowly, with my arms outstretched. I see the grey, wide arch of a bridge, and I think it must be a long bridge, but I can't see where it has come from or where it is going. The foot of the bridge is met by a bank of damp grass, and I count eleven large rubbish bags piled high. Some are black, others white, and all are tied at the top. A short distance from these I see an open carrier bag. It is red, well not quite red, and as I fall toward the ground the bag gets bigger and bigger and I close my eyes and everything is red. I think I'm inside the carrier bag. Perhaps you could start with telling me who Evangeline is. <laughs> well. <laughs> Great name. <laughs> Evangeline is a song. It's the first song on an album by one of my favourite bands, and they're called Angels of Light. But Evangeline is also a person I knew. It's not her real name, and um, because she is now lost, I won't ever know more about her. And so what happened and what I know now, so much of her is imagined. She's kind of like a, a mirage or a, a sledgehammer. <laughs> I, I also got the sense that, I mean, I know she's a real person in your mind, but for me, reading your story, Evangeline could stand for all our losses she, she's like a stand-in for memory. There seems to be throughout the story this real life and death struggle. This, you know, you say, I was no longer anything at all. And there's the scene of the bridge and there's this grey, the void. And it's like, can I survive this loss or not? But also you could flip it to be Evangeline and, and her own loss. Anyway, it's a beautiful story. So you've read one of my favourite parts of the story, which was the part where we move from the grass to black and white and to red, being inside it's the, the carrier, yes. carrier bag. So I just want to point out one of my other favourite parts of the that favourite. That's really naff, isn't it? The other part <laughs> of the story that really created such a strong image in my mind. The end of the cigarette is a burst of orange and smoke fills the air. The first hit is long, longer than usual, and the second is even longer. The dry Spanish breeze wraps the smoke around my head and in my hair, and it disappears over my shoulders. So for quite a long time before that, you're talking about the whole process of getting out a cigarette and lighting a cigarette, and then... Yeah there's this smoke and the breeze and i i just i just love that way that the air is a way to move the story into the next part of the story yeah i i've kind of done that uh, recently in something i'm writing now by using the air something moving in the air to move from one place in the story to another place but also i described every detail of opening the cigarette packet because I wanted that to take a long time to read. I wanted it to make the reader think about if we're sad or we're shocked, it feels like time is slowing down or has slowed down and we seem to notice the detail in things. But also with that cigarette, it's the kind of holding of something like almost trying to get outside of your mind and into your physical world by focusing on what you're doing with your cigarette. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's like a um, a sort of a crutch, or well, it's a habit. So it it removes from the situation. 
into into something very um, normal, which happens all the time, being smoking. Yeah, definitely. Evangeline reappears through through yeah. other stories, and I was thinking of that way that you construct your writing. Well, actually, I was thinking about it in terms of different stories that I've read of yours could all be part of one bigger story. They seem yeah. to have a mood that runs through them. And not not literally like part one, part two, part three, etc. Yeah. But there is, I thought, a connection with the exhibiting of your work. For instance, going back to the Division of Labour show, you've got the Division of Labour, I think was at the start of 2017. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Which was called Everything Can Be Broken. And yeah. then you've got, at the end of 2017, you've got Everything is Medicine at Lillybrook. Yeah. Were you always going to do that in parts? Can you talk a bit about that? There, there was never an intention to to work in a way which could be considered as parts. The show with Division Labour, so that was in January. It was actually the first, well, the first time I'd ever worked like that. And that kind of method came from a discussion with Nathaniel Pitt, who's the director of Division Labour. It was him who suggested that I um, take the empty gallery space apart to make my exhibition, and I was pleased with it. The show at Lillybrook was a little bit different. Again, it was trying to use the physical space of the gallery. And I think because they happened quite closely together, I decided upon these upon a title which was quite similar, actually. So that maybe gave the illusion of it being considered as two parts of the same thing. But that was never the intention from the beginning. It was just a, a method, really. And when I think about the other two shows, Out of the Dark at the Haywood Gallery and then In oh, From the Light at Caster Project, yeah. that has a similar implication with the titles. I'd actually sort of forgot about the title of the one at the Haywood, um, but they're so similar that they're kind of saying the same thing but just in a different way. There was actually um, La La Land at William Bennington as well. Infinite Light, so I was really thinking about if you kind of focus on something, you bring a light to it and then you see something that you didn't before. And maybe if you're looking for something, anything, you will find it. I'm going to be a bit descriptive and you can be yeah. as well because people are not going to be looking at work when they're, yeah. you know, listening to this. So in that exhibition at Caster Projects, In From The Light, this was another time where you not only looked at what you could work with in the gallery space, but you actually kind of took the gallery apart. You made a bit of a mess, Simon, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you took the plasterboards off and you turned yeah. them around. Yeah, I removed a lot of the ceiling. Well, we cut a hole in the ceiling and we um, removed the lights from the ceiling and put them on the wall. And we hung a construction net and some scaffolding. And we had these uh, rubber sleeves, uh, lengths of rubber, which were uh, hung from the scaffold. And inside them was cast the ceiling, which I'd broken up. Then the floor and the walls were painted kind of a dusty pink colour. You had people walk in and walk yeah. around those dividers of space and they directed you through the space, but also they were like shower curtains because they're semi-translucent. And then you had all these lights shining on them, like the setup for a scene yeah. where I'm walking into something that's unravelling, if you like, itself before me. Did you have a sense of how you wanted people to manage the space or how did, how did you decide to create those hanging rubber sheets? I actually made a lot of them. I made too many of them. And then um, I just kind of hung them when I saw um, the rest of the space more or less finished. The intention was really just to, to break up the space. So you kind of create these areas for people to walk through or across. With these exhibitions, I've kind of come to think of them as almost like portraits. Like I speak a lot about dreams with um, an analyst. She says that when we dream of a landscape as physical character, we're, we're in fact dreaming about a person in our lives. And then the way we respond to that landscape is um, telling us something about how we think about that person. And so the way I relate that to those exhibitions is that Though I wasn't thinking about a person, I was kind of thinking about trying to make um, like a character and a mood and a temperament. And then within that, there's a kind of mystery. 
so it feels like there's a story to to kind of learn about and that's why hopefully people would would move around and start looking at things and I, I suppose that can be seen in parallel with what you said about the crime scene and there's like a, a story something which came before I suppose I was trying to clarify I don't get a sense that a crime has happened but yeah something mm. has happened before so coming back to your story, we get to where the red lips tell you they're a volcano. And I suppose that the mention of volcano reminded me, there's a song by Beck called Volcano, where he talks about the Japanese girl that jumped into the volcano and wondering why she did that. And was she trying to return to the womb of the world or something? In the end of the song, Beck sings about how he wants to go to the volcano, but he doesn't want to jump in, but he just wants to be there for a moment. So there's this sort of teetering on the edge of some sort of suicide or return to the earth kind of thing. Well, the volcano would swallow you up, wouldn't it? And it also reminded me of the performance by Billy Whitelaw in 1973 of Samuel Beckett's Not I. And actually, in the recording of that, she doesn't have red lips because it's black and white. But my memory, so clearly, even though I watched it again the other day, she's got red lips as far as I'm concerned. I always think of them as red. Oh, do you? Okay, okay. So... It's like a sort of interior mindscape or something like that. Do you want to talk a bit about the sort of fiery lusciousness of that red? I had that image of the mouth from Not I in my mind when I was thinking about the mouth. The, the mouth is actually a real person. I think I wanted to describe her like the um, like the mouth in Not I because what I liked about that mouth is that it didn't have a body. So it's not quite human. And then when you listen to it speak it, it speaks so much quicker than, than a human really ever speaks. I think because it didn't have this humanness, it could say or do anything that it wanted. And I wanted um, the mouth in my story not to be restricted by being human. And I wanted them to be free. And in this case, they are actually found floating inside a carrier bag. The reason really that the mouth is talking about a volcano, I think, because it was a real conversation. <laughs> is that um, when I was speaking to my friend, I was actually holding a copy of Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano. So I think that's what prompted her to talk about volcanoes. But that doesn't really explain why she said what she said. She, she has these very full red lips, and um, that was the thing I wanted to bring the attention to, really. The use of colour is really interesting through the story because we have you talking about that burst of orange, the interior of the bag is red, you've got the black and white rubbish bags, and as I said in the part that you read out, we go from the green of the grass to the black and white to the red. And I was thinking about your work, and there isn't much colour in it. Well, it's quite muted. But I don't want them on my wall, you know, thinking <laughs> thinking <laughs> of that sort of rubbery pink that was in yeah. La La Land, for instance. Yeah. But they do have a really intentional purpose, like they do mm. in your story. Do you want to talk about what your approach is to colour? I think in the in the exhibitions, a lot of materials, because they're, well, they're repurposed, so they're real materials and... Um, they look and feel real and they remind us of other things. And um, in the stories, well, when I'm writing, they, they kind of occupy a, a place between reality, uh, fantasy, dream. So I'm not really very tied to reality. I mean, I love colour. I, I use it in the exhibitions, but it's the colour of the things which are already there. Whereas in the story, I can bring in any colour I want whenever I want. I like to use colour as a way to move between objects and spaces and uh, through duration of time. So colour has a very different use for me when I'm writing. A, a bit like what you were saying about the movement of the air, sort of carrying the, the story with it from one place to another. What interests me about what you're saying is that I can very quickly recall you talking about growing up in the Isle of Wight and looking at rock formations and having, therefore, been quite at ease with letting things just be their natural colour, whatever colour they happen to be. 
then when we are looking at landscape or when we are looking at something in the natural world, I mean, obviously you could say when you're looking at anything, but just from what you're saying, you internalize those things that you see and then they almost become imbued with an unrealistic uh, richness in color. And so perhaps they, they come out then in your stories in another way. Yeah, that's right, because some colours, they can be like a warning or can signal the temperature, whereas when you're in a space, they, they don't necessarily work in the, in the same way because you already feel the temperature. Aside from colour, there's also a little moment where you talk about the clear lighter being your favourite lighter. Yeah. And I really like that yeah. because yeah. it's so different from the sort of colour blocks that you present us with. And it also made me think of a transparent or a semi-transparent vessel for liquid. Yeah. And you've used this, you've used this device. And I'm thinking quite specifically about Souvenir. Uh, perhaps you'd yeah. like to describe Souvenir because they are so full of familiarity and recognition and pattern and landscape and body and all sorts of things they're a really rich piece of work so the souvenir series they are glass or acrylic vitrines which are filled with studio detritus and um, past artworks this is broken down, sieved, cleaned, and then arranged in strata running horizontally through the vitrine. So you have a series of different colored bands, a little bit like um, looking at the side of a cliff. Yeah, I grew up on the Isle of Wight and um, being an island, we're, we're surrounded by cliffs, but also um, my grandfather, he had a shop which sold um, sand souvenirs. And so colored sands from the cliffs at Allen Bay were filled into these glass vessels, sometimes the shape of the Isle of Wight or the shape of a, a bird or a guitar or something. And they were sold in souvenir shops. <laughs> so I, I just grew up around these things. And it obviously made quite a big impression, really. Coming from Australia, of course, they're everywhere in souvenir shops. Speaking of sand vials, the first time I saw them as let's call it art, mm -hmm. uh, was when Susan Hiller created little box displays in response to Sigmund Freud's collection of artifacts. And it's not directly so much about those vials, but she said something quite interesting, which I felt was quite connected to your work as well. So I'll just read it out. Sigmund Freud's okay. impressive collection of classical art and artifacts inspired me to formalise and focus my project. But if Freud's collection is a kind of index to the version of Western civilization's heritage he was claiming, then my collection taken as a whole is an archive of misunderstandings, crises, and ambivalences that complicate any such notion of heritage. On a trip to Australia, she actually bought some of these vials and, mm -hmm. and used them. I was thrilled to see in her exhibition in the Tate. And she talks about these ambivalences that complicate any such notion of heritage and perhaps not so much a notion of heritage with your work, but perhaps a notion of place because throughout the story, yeah. you know, one moment we're in Mexico, another moment we're in Spain, and I find it really hard to know where I am or where I'm supposed to be or where you are. And there's yeah. a double up going on because not only am I geographically confused, I'm not sure also if this is happening in your mind or if this is happening in real life. Or So in terms of conscious and subconscious, which Susan Hiller is very interested in and Freud is very interested in, that seems to happen in your work as well. So what do you say about that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Well, well, I think the first thing to say is that, well, well I think of the, the clear lighter. So I, I had uh, buckets of used mop water in the show and Division of Labour and um, William Bennington. And I think of these vessels like I think of the souvenir series, uh, that they contain memory. And um, I think with the, the lighter fluid in particular, the level of the fluid, there's something there which tells us about the passing of time. And of then course. Mm. In the bucket with used water, it tells us also about how that time has been used. And I could really say the same thing about the vitrines because those usually contain um, materials from past artworks or elements from the space that I'm working in. Yeah, I think it's really a, a container for memory. It's interesting because you come across as quite a calm person, but you're quite a destructor, aren't you? 
you know, you're smashing up <laughs> ceilings, walls, things in your studio. Oh, well, I enjoy it. I've seen, <laughs> That's why I'm calm. <laughs> I've seen you in action with a hammer, bashing yeah. stuff up. I do love a hammer. <laughs> I also want to pick up on the transfer of the worm, which is yeah. quite disgusting. Yeah. To be honest, I don't quite know what to make of it. But I did think about the internalization of something passing from, okay, it's passing from one person to the other, but almost like passing from one vessel to another. And we mm. can see that in your work where, didn't you keep the water for a year? Oh, uh, yeah, I've still got it, actually. Is it moldy? It's very green. You explain what you did. You mopped the water. Yeah, I just mopped the floor uh, of the gallery and I mopped the walls. And I kept both those different used water in different buckets with lids and I still have both of them. The position of those is always interesting because in the exhibition Prevent This Tragedy, the oh, bucket yeah. was up quite yeah. high and then at the show in William Bennington it was more head height. Yeah, that's right. Personally experiencing that, you're shifting from something quite disconnected from me because it's up high, so I'm looking up into it to something much more connected to me because it's more at head height. Mm. I don't like to think my head is awash with dirty water. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to tell me anything more about the transfer of the worm? When I was writing about the worm, I was thinking about a couple of things. I was thinking how, how the worm could have been a bug or maybe the worm is a stand-in for a bug. And... Um, and so the, the worm being in the body is like when people say, you have the bug. Um, so it's an image to describe how that feeling or sensation can, can grow inside us. Another thing was many years ago, I traveled in India with a friend and um, he, he got a parasite which was growing inside his stomach. And um, I remember really clearly, you could see where the bug was inside his stomach because you could see this kind of pinkish shadow on his skin and it was growing bigger and bigger. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, what you were saying just there has completely changed my idea of, now where was it? I think it was in William Bennington Gallery. Yeah. In, in the office you had that pink. Yeah, a print. Well, it's not a flat print, is it? Yeah, it's like embossed. I'm thinking that might have parasites in it now. I, I think I wanted it to feel like um, like it was something under the surface. So it has a kind of beauty to it, but um, it also could have parasites under the surface, a bug, maybe a sort of a disease or a virus. That was also that sort of pinkish colour. Dusty well, pink. Like skin, but nobody's actual skin. Yeah, it doesn't actually look like skin at all, but that kind of colour sort of fetishises skin, but it, but it sort of brings your attention back to the body. For me, the body and, uh, and the, the kind of physicalness of art and making artwork is very important. Is the gallery space a body or is it a place for a body? I do think of it as a body. I think of it as, a, as an empty body. I was thinking about this a while ago. I started thinking about um, these memories I had as a child of visiting this place called Black Gang Chine on the Isle of Wight. And um, in, the, in the main entranceway, it opens up into a hall. And the hall, which is now a, a gift shop, is actually the, the carcass of a whale, uh, which was washed up on the beach in Chael, I think, around the Victorian period. And a, um, an entrepreneur bought it had the bones bleached and then it was installed inside this this hall. So when you walk inside the room, you're actually inside the body of a whale. That that sort of stuck with me. So it's something I think about. When I when I walk into an empty space and I'm thinking about making an exhibition, I always think about what things I can attach to that body. Like what's the character of this body? Uh, what's the mood? That's really how it starts. A kind of Frankenstein. I was living in downtown Sao Paulo. I had a show at Emma Thomas Gallery in Jardines, and my studio was in a building called the Copan Building. It's in the centre of the city. And um, I had a studio there, and down the corridor, they were painting the walls and floor of a space black. It was for a film screening, I think. So um, 
I was collecting all this all this dirt from the building because it had been abandoned, I think, since the 70s. So it had about 40-something years of dust. And um, I, I had been collecting it. And then when I saw that they'd spill this black paint on the floor, because they were going to come and paint the floor properly the day after. So I just wiped my material that I had um, in that paint and that turned it black. By the time it got to prevent this tragedy, it was draped fabric over a rod that was hanging up quite high. Yeah. It just had a really interesting drama to it. I suppose it also connects to the work at Castor Projects as well. This way of taking detritus and rubbish and throwaway things and not holding on to them like uh, the inability to let something go, but maybe investigating how else they might possibly be thought of or how else they might possibly be read or experienced. Yeah, I like all the materials are sort of low value. I think part of the process is transforming those materials so that they can be seen in a different way, perhaps with a sense of having more value. Because you also held on to, I understand, a year's worth of rubbish or something. I mean, in, in Evangelist <laughs> 2, you have, what is it, 11? It was 11 um, rubbish bags tied in the top. They were actually from a dream. But but I remember I, I counted them. So as I was falling from the, the bridge in the dream, I was counting the rubbish bags on the grass. Just, just as something to do on the way down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to performances. At okay. the La La Land story, story, it is like a story, isn't it? At the La La Land exhibition, yeah. you had an actor do the performance. I know you've done performances before. Do you want to talk about the decisions that you made to change from you doing a performance to somebody else doing a performance and what that means for somebody else to do a performance in a gallery that you see from the outset is a body or an empty body. So they're doing a performance in a body in a strange way. Can you tell me a little bit about your side of that? Well, the performances I used to do, I used to perform with a collaborator called William McCraw. And those were sort of uh, like single actions, really. And um, this performance was different in that it was uh, scripted. So it's like a play. And um, I had an idea about who that character was. Well, he was the person I wanted to be and the person I thought other people believed I was. And he was also the person that I could never be. He was confined to the boundary of the lowered lighting track in the gallery. And he addressed the audience with aggression, derision, delusion. And he, he drank a lot. He smoked, he spat, belched, he sang. And he danced. So yeah, that was a lot of fun to write a character that was not me, but then have someone perform it as me if I could be that performer. Remind me, was he sort of a bit exasperated with you in the performance? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He kind of describes me being annoying and um, sort of like a frustrating person because I didn't really, I haven't really given him enough instruction on how he should behave. He's just been given the task of occupying these people's attention for a, a period of time. And I've, I've told him that if he does that, I will give him some money. And he doubts whether I'm a sincere person, whether I will pay him. So his way of using the time is to really kind of ridicule me and the people in the audience. And he's kind of a frustrated character. What I find particularly uh, interesting about that description you give, it conveys or it gives away the impossibility of being somebody else, really. Because the real you, let's say, uh, when I think of the work that you did a while ago in Morocco, which was repeated in London, fitting it ain't easy. And oh, yeah. I understand that was about not fitting in. Yeah. Those self-portraits of you camouflaged in your surround. Do you want to describe them briefly? Yeah. So um, the, the first one was a photograph taken in Morocco in a Medina. And um, I sat under a blanket, like a textile of a local design. Well, with the intention of camouflaging myself, because it was a, a small town with very few tourists, and I stuck out a lot. I think never before in my life had I felt so sort of foreign. And so that was kind of a new feeling. 
Yeah, I, I kind of imagined the blanket like a wearing camouflage, really. Uh, but what it actually did was it drew much more attention to me than, than me just walking around without a blanket over me. And then yeah. how did that play out in London later? Well, in London, like, just no one, no one really notices anything because in London so many things happen which might seem unusual if we think about it but that is the normal landscape of the city really so it was a very anonymous thing. So in all three of those performances in a way they play out very differently from you from your actor about fitting in and about identity and about where you might belong or not belong as you say in Morocco you feel like a foreigner and then you make yourself inadvertently stand out as a foreigner, then you play out a similar thing in London where you're just vacuumed up with the whole uh, cityscape and then you have somebody else try to be you. You're improving all the time. <laughs> you're going to be amazing. <laughs> you're going to be amazing one day. <laughs> you keep going like this. I, I'm reminded of something uh, an old school teacher said to my my mum. I think it was a parents' evening. He was called Mr. Kafferke, and he said, "You know, Simon is really, really good at being Simon." <laughs> I think the implication was that I wasn't much use for anything else. Yeah, like maybe that's what I'm practicing. In a way, it's a backhanded compliment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, you were telling me that your grandma used to say that because you were dreamy, you were off in La La Land, and then you used that yeah. as a name for that exhibition at William Bennington. There's almost like a coming to terms with yourself that you are sharing with us. When I'm thinking about the that sort of exploration of mind and body and Evangeline and other characters and landscape and holes in the landscape and different places that you've visited. And you really have lived in lots of places and done residencies in lots of places. Then it all becomes in a way enmeshed in this sort of all place, all time, no place, no time, which then becomes every place, every time. And all that brings me to thinking about uh, Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. And they are sort of like no no man every every man, and no place yeah. every place, and no time every time. It's just time. It's just waiting. Yeah. And we don't know what they're waiting for, but they're definitely waiting for Godot. The, the thing that I like about Beckett and I appreciate about the stage performances in particular is um, how they have very little stage furniture or dressing. So it might be a single tree three vases, a chair and a bin. And um, they don't actually look like any single place that you may have seen, but there's enough space around those objects or the objects to imagine that you could be around the corner from your home or in a different city or a different country. So these performances are sort of happening really, and they could be anywhere. That's something I, something I think is a strength, really. You have to do so much work as the audience then. And also you are facilitated in a way, I think. Because there's less, you are able to focus a lot better. And you have that sparseness in your work. It's not like you're showing us the guts and all of the inside of a body or anything like that. Yeah. But you're finding ways to think about what might be on the inside. It's a curious puzzle that we can't work out. In those performances, you might be exploring something about yourself and something about not fitting in. But I never get the sense that we are preoccupied with you as the artist. I don't mean this rudely, but I'm not ever thinking about Simon Linnington in your exhibitions. <laughs> <laughs> Take Beckett's Waiting for Godot. You're not thinking about Samuel Beckett. You're so preoccupied with these characters. And it's the same with your exhibition, is you get that sparseness and you get that focus on what's there. And then you're creating your own sense of how it all might fit together, what one thing is in relation to another thing, and to look at something and to look inside of something. In the case of Waiting for Godot, 
Godot is like the uh, the thing which binds everything together, like the relationship between the characters. Yeah. But we actually don't even know what or who Godot is. Yeah. So Godot is the story which runs behind the story that we're watching. And um, I think what you're saying is it's kind of like that, like there's a story behind the one that we're involved in, but we're not really sure what that is. But that story is maybe not, it's not me, but it's like a version of the reality of me. So I want to come back finally to Evangeline 2. And what is, of course, extremely striking about the title is the double meaning of Evangeline 2. It's almost like this cycle that we go on of, you know, first Evangeline is this woman who's left you, then Evangeline is the worm that's inside of you and eating your insides out. Actually, that's really gross. What was that in? (laughs) That was in one of those, wasn't that in a Burroughs, William Burroughs story? Um, it was a naked lunch. Yeah. Obviously, two can be number two, which is like a twin, mm. but it can also be as well as, which is more like a reoccurrence. Yeah. And that seems to be how your work actually works. Each piece of work almost feels like parts of one big piece of work. Yeah. So with Evangeline, like um, she's a mystery really because she's there and then, and then she's not there and we don't know where she's gone. And the worm is something real. It's also there, it's present in the body. And and the worm grew as the idea of Evangeline grew. But with Evangeline now gone, the worm is still in the body and both are are hidden. So both are sort of out of sight. They're both real, they're both a mystery, really. And then it's very difficult to distinguish between what is of the body and what is of the mind. Yeah, very much. So where is this published? Uh, This is published with uh, Sunday Salon. In New York. Okay, well, I'll find the link and I'll put it in the notes. Just to finish up, I'm not sure whether I want to ask you what you're reading now because I like to think that you're not doing any reading and that you're writing away. You do have another story coming up uh, that's going to get published in October. September. September, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Called Ghosts. So do you want to talk a bit about perhaps what you're reading now and maybe introduce us to the next story? I don't know if you want to read from that or it's it's up to you. Um, So I've just finished reading two books, actually. One is by Fernando del Paso and it's called Palinuro of Mexico. Fernando del Paso is a Mexican writer who I came across in Mexico. And this book was written, well, it was published in 1977. And it's the personal history and the adventures of Palinuro. And he's a medical student who lives in a single room with his cousin Estefania, with whom he has a sexual relationship. And um, that story takes place in this one room in the Plaza de Santo Domingo, which was um, uh, just around the corner from where I was living. So when you say you were living there, was this your residency and your exhibition with Brooke Bennington? That was um, when I was doing the residency in Mexico for Brooke Bennington, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Before that, I just read a book by Tao Lin, and um, this one was um, shoplifting from American Apparel. And um, it's (laughs) largely uh, autobiographical about a young aspiring author and occasional uh, shoplifter though he only seems to steal from American power and um, his name is Sam but Sam is obviously Taolin and um, I've just finished writing a story which as you said will be published in September with So Anyway magazine and the story is called Ghosts. This story again is written in two parts but it's halves this time. The first half is a reflection on experiences of different forms of loss and the second half describes a metamorphosis in a chaotic, confusing and sort of overflowing world. It's a series of memories told without chronology and um, in the story there's a point where time begins to go backwards and the story ends before the story starts. Okay, brilliant. I'll put a a link for that as well. And I look forward to that coming out in September. But for now, perhaps you could read an excerpt from Ghosts. I've just got one paragraph. Look, you're starting to annoy me, Simon, she says. And before I can think where she might have learned my name, or if we have met before, she hit me on the side of the head with a rock, and the blow threw me forward against the ground. She walked around me and kicked me in the side 
and I grabbed her ankle and pulled her down onto the ground. She quickly turned over, sat up, and slammed the rock down hard on the ground again and again, and the noise ricocheted off the thousands of bones and covered everything with the same high-pitched sound I heard when I discovered the hole in my stomach. Stay away from me, I shouted, and again, stay away. The old woman took a step back. I moved my right hand toward the side of my head where I thought the wound was, but before I could reach it, she lunged forward and hit me again, and my body relaxed as if someone had said, Simon, it's all right. Simon, that doesn't sound all right, though. (laughs) (laughs) I quite enjoyed writing that um, bit, actually. Yeah, it kind of felt quite freeing. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how you started writing in the first place. I started when I was living in Sao Paulo. I was staying in an apartment which was given to me by the gallery. There were a lot of uh, books on the bookshelf, but um, I looked through them all and they were all in Portuguese and Spanish and I couldn't read either languages. But there was one that was in English and it was by Jack Kerouac. I'd actually read Kerouac before, but I'd never heard of this book and it was called uh, Tristeza and it's set in Mexico City. It's based on Kerouac's relationship with a Mexican prostitute called Tristeza. Her real name was actually um, Esperanza, which means hope. But Carrick changed her name to Tristessa, which means sadness. And um, that book was kind of a narrative meditation on a hen, rooster, a dove, a cat, a dog, and some meat, I think. And it discussed Tristessa's addiction to morphine and her impoverished life. And within that, there were elements of her beauty and her innocence. And I didn't really like where I was staying very much. And so just reading about those observations, I would kind of look out of my window and think about the things that were around me. And I would see people selling drugs on the corner or um, prostitutes. And as kind of like an exercise, I would sort of imagine that I was somewhere else, not just a different country, but in a different time. So I'd read a lot about New York in the 70s, 80s. I sort of tried to imagine that I was there because it was somewhere I could never go to, somewhere I could never see. And then I started writing a diary as like a time traveller who who lived actually in an arsehole because my street name was Hegar Freitas, which translates as the dirty hole. I believe it's another way of saying arsehole. So yeah, th- those observations came from living in, in the arsehole of Sao Paulo. So what sort of timing was that? Uh, this was in February, March 2015. I started writing then, and then I didn't write anything again for another two years. So you've got quite a concise memory of how beginning to write came about. Do you have a concise memory of how you started making artworks? I suppose I started at school. But I think the the way I'm working now has only really happened since the beginning of 2017 with the show at Division of Labour. Working in that way was a new way for me. I just uh, discovered I liked it and I discovered that I could make things with a certain kind of freedom, which I didn't feel like I really had before. So that's I, I kind of enjoyed the, the tempo of working like that. Your work is more like a verb. It's happening as you uh-huh. experience it. So is that what you mean about a new way of working? Or is it about materials? Because you also seem to use what's at hand. Yeah, I, I think it's maybe a bit of both things. Maybe this show, a Caster Projects, is a good example because in that show, it being divided by the rubber, you could find your way around it. So <clears throat> there's a kind of unveiling as you travel through it. And that has a lot to do with time, really. I think the way the, the show is, is made and the way the show is seen time has a large role because the show changes too like the color of the water changes the lights change so I, th- I think change is is a bigger part now of the presentation do you have a mindset for creating things that are ephemeral that don't last or is that just incidental i think it's actually incidental because i never really decided that it was one way or the other and i i still don't and i actually never really considered that as like a criteria that's just something which comes out of whatever material it is or however it's put together so when you're at chelsea college of arts did you work in a way that was ephemeral then yeah i did i made these kind of mechanisms which 
threw paint around them. Eventually they would just break. They'd freeze or, or bits would just fall off and then there was kind of a natural end point. And um, I think I was never really sure whether the paint they were throwing around, whether that was the artwork or whether it was the thing which was making it do that. I don't think it really mattered either. But Is that how you came to doing that pinhole photography, by the way? That was because I was staying in the Karoo Desert in South Africa. And um, on, on the ground, there's all these um, instant coffee containers and bottles. And they're, they're left by the shepherds, which herd the cattle. And um, I just collected some of them and made pinhole cameras with them to take photographs of the environment. It, it seemed like a good place to do it because the light there is kind of the same every day. It's bright, but at the same time, it's sort of perfectly flat because it's always the same. So um, it's really easy to take a photograph there with a pinhole camera. For me, it was just obvious to use the things which were there already on the ground. It was the first place as well that I experienced a mirage. That was quite amazing. I recall you saying that, that there was a certain sort of hostility about the landscape and you were quite isolated therefore very vulnerable because you're miles away from anywhere where you could get any kind of medical help if you were bitten by a snake or something. And they have snakes. Yeah, they do. (laughs) Yeah, the nearest town was a four-hour walk and that town had 35 people. And then the nearest town from that town was another six-hour walk. And that town didn't have a hospital either, so you had to keep going. So I was thinking about the snakes. And like I was taught to walk from like one high point to another, because when you get down from that that position, every other position like it looks like the one that you came from and like the one that you were walking towards. So you, you kind of learn a way to sort of read and navigate the landscape. Okay. Simon, it's okay. been so lovely talking to you today on Art Fictions. Thank you, Julian. Thank you. Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please review, and of course you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram, artfictions2020, or my website, gilliannight.co.uk. Across these you'll find images of the artist's work, as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. Why were you there? Yeah, um, my ex, my, my ex-partner, she's uh, South African. So ah. her family are from uh, Karoo. So we would stay with her family. Oh, wow. And so, but how did you get there then? Uh, <laughs> we would fly from London to Johannesburg and then fly from Johannesburg to Port Elizabeth, and then we drive from Port Elizabeth to Grahamstown, and then that was two hours, and then we drive Grahamstown to New Bethesda. I think it was four or five hours.